Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to Magnified with Matt Cooper. This is a podcast designed to spend a bit more time with the guests than I might normally have on my radio show, The Last Word. Today, we're joined by an entrepreneur, a man who has a track record in technology with fantastic success with companies like Cartroller, a very interesting backstory, an unconventional path when it comes to education and a very different type of childhood in his interests to those of many others. But now he's got this incredible idea of drone delivery. Can you imagine getting your takeaway order delivered by drone silly? or getting your takeaway coffee in the morning, freshly brewed and with you within minutes of been served up by the barista in your favourite coffee shop that you don't have time to get to. Well, that's just some of what Bobby Healy of Mana Aero is offering, and he's our guest today in our latest edition of Magnified. I'm disappointed that you didn't have the Tesla with you. It's around there, yeah. You're, you are driving a Tesla still. Because yeah. you were apparently the original early adapter of the Tesla. I think I was the first Tesla in the country, but I might be the second Tesla in the country. There's a bit of game going on about who was the first. Uh, and I asked the Tesla lads in Sandyford, and they won't tell me, which makes me think I'm the second. Uh, so I bought mine online, and I had to get a shift over from from Holland they they didn't operate how long ago was that time. it's an 05 no it's not it's, it's a one one five. yeah so seven years and you still have it yeah you still drive it when you didn't upgrade it no. no no well it has ludicrous mode all the things you need 85 kilowatt battery um, so like no it don't, and it's weird now I have I've just bought a model 3 so uh, and I don't know why because the the Model S is perfect like it's, you know the leather's a bit old and stuff but it's still like the self-driving on the old version of that car is better than the self-driving on the newest car why is that? because they the original car used a company called Mobileye an Israeli company and that was the original tech Bosch uh, radar and, and Israeli software and and then Tesla kicked them out about about two years after I got my car they build their own software it's all computer vision it's all deep learning loads of cameras and sensors and it's not nearly as good still because I know because the wife has the the newer car the newer Tesla and so she has the new Tesla software and I have the old one and you're safe in my car it's solid as a rock uh, it holds the road doesn't do any mad things the new Tesla occasionally goes nuts like it'll hit the brakes it'll do a shimmy all sorts of stuff so work to do there still but they're still they're great cars I mean I've just bought my third one you know seven years of experience with it love it yeah, that, that's really interesting because you actually sort of preempted what I wanted to ask you about is the self-driving element of it because mm. you don't hear nearly as much talk about that anymore that originally Tesla it's now marketed almost as an environmentally friendly electric car. Whereas originally, I thought the whole fuss was supposed to be about that. We would eventually be able to sit back, do all the things in the car while the car drove for you. Yeah, correct. I even gave a TEDx talk on the very subject and I had loads of pictures of people lying down in their car, exercising in their car, lounging around, you know, everyone, everything but play a game of snooker. And it's still, it's one of those 
technical problems that's so difficult to solve because of the edge cases. Because you might, like, Google's way more the best company in the world at self-driving cars, like way ahead of anyone else. And they have, it's called a disengagement rate. And they have now their 10,000 miles per disengagement. And disengagement is when the car doesn't know what to do and it just stops or it asks the, the, the human to take over. And it's those edge cases that make it really, really difficult problem to solve. And, and the problem is the regulator from a kind of governance and, and legal ownership point of view can't give, you know, unfettered scaling to technology that can't be proven to be safe yet. And, and nor could Google, Waymo or, well, Tesla probably would actually. Tesla would roll it out, but they, they will have accidents. The car will make a mistake because famous edge case that one of my friends from Google told me where, you know, there was a, the car was driving along and the car went nuts because a lady in a wheelchair ran out or wheeled out in front of the car holding a stick in her hand chasing a turkey. Now, that's a, an unusual thing that happens that you can't, you, there's no data set, right, that says, <laughs> what do we do when a lady in a wheelchair goes in front of the car and there's a turkey you know, it's like just there's things that happen that are so random. So I w- if I had to bet, I would say it is still 10 years away before people in Ireland will be closing their eyes and having a snooze while their car takes them somewhere. But do you think it will happen? I know it'll happen. It's 100% it'll happen. Yeah. Why is it 100% it'll happen? Well, for starters, everyone wants it to happen. The world would be a better place if it was available. It'd be a safer place. In fact, to be honest with you, today... If if we gave the, the wheel to autonomous driving today, the world would be a safer place. There's 1.3 million road deaths a year, right? Ireland has, you know, 150 to 500, depending on what year you get to. That's 150 to 500 families that are without somebody. And autonomous driving would completely cure that. Yet with the today, psychology with today's of technology. humanity is, it's, oh, we can't be trusting the computers or the I, machines to do that. We have to yeah. do it for ourselves, even though the figures show that a lot of people do it very badly. Correct. But it's, it's like getting onto a plane, you know, but people were afraid to get onto planes way back when and, and they got used to it. You know, once the first early adopters did it and, and you know, the adoption curve is, is like a hockey stick. Once the early adopters do it, then everyone else follows and pretty soon you wonder why the hell you, let, you allowed a human being in charge of a three-ton vehicle at whatever, 50 kilometers an hour, right beside children on their bicycles in a bicycle lane. It doesn't, that actually doesn't make any sense. What does make sense is reliable, safe, LIDAR, you know, computer sensors and computer to, to avoid difficult situations. And they would do that very safely. The, the only problem with, with driving now is, particularly in our roads, there's so many mad things. I'd like just to drive here today, you know, my brain was at full tail trying to figure out what the hell. There's this guy holding a stop sign up and he wasn't doing his job properly. He was on the phone and, you know, those situations computers don't like. So what you would have is you would have a very safe system, but a lot of computerized cars would just be stopping. They wouldn't know what to do. So they would need some human oversight, you know, to intervene and help them move and, and things. Actually, there's a proxy for this, which is happening much earlier on. And you'll see in San Francisco and all over the US, there's these little autonomous buggies, delivery buggies on the ground, little four wheel things. And they frequently get stuck, right? They don't know what to do. They, they see a situation that they can't understand. So they just stop and they wait for people to go by and they say, you know, excuse me, could you help me? And people pick them up and they put them back on the path or whatever. So you see even on a 
in a very safe environment where there's little buggies that wouldn't harm anyone, they get stuck half the time. And there's there's actually always a person in the command and control center connected to one of those little buggies, helping it find its way through. And that's the state of the art. That's as good as the tech is. So you mentioned that there's a better car than a Tesla. You mentioned, what was it? Waymo. Waymo. Yeah. So why does Elon Musk get all the publicity and why does he have the soaring stock market valuation well, he owns for Twitter now so uh, no well, he's a marketer by, by, by the time this is broadcast there's a possibility he might have pulled back from the purchase of I, Twitter I, I bet that he will own it I would bet that he will own it but there is a good chance that he won't so let's see when, when people are listening to this one of us is right one of us is wrong okay I bet for so the, re- the reason is so he's building a brand he's not a technologist he's a, he's a brand builder and he's a, almost like a cult now if you go to a Tesla charging station, all those Tesla owners are there with their little Tesla logos and sitting in front of a Tesla charger, and they're all smug as hell, thinking that they're great because they're in the club. You're the pioneer in oh, Ireland. I am, yeah, I love the car, but I'm not in the cult, right? I just, I'm a techie, right? So I was at the time the CTO of Car Troller. I had to have an electric car, otherwise it'd be an embarrassment to our brand. Yeah. Uh, I didn't expense it, unfortunately. But the point is, I love tech, and, and this was an early tech, and I definitely... I felt it was viable, and so I wanted to give it a go. But, I mean, Tesla is a brand, and SpaceX reinforced that brand. Like, you know, you see that rocket, you know, hurtling to the ground, and it spins around at the last second, and it lands on a ship in the middle of the sea. That's pretty bloody cool, right? And that flows right into Tesla's brand. There's better electric cars coming. Lucid have a better, technology-wise better, but they, nobody has a chance against Tesla. Nobody. They don't need to have the best technology anymore. They just need to get the right price point, be able to get the scale, and their brand will take them through. They'll prevail nearly anywhere. Maybe in Germany, the Germans will win, but but Tesla are going to win pretty much every other market. And what do you make of Musk? He's a brand expert. He's a publicist. Would you have any issues with him owning Twitter, which you're fairly active on yourself? I love Twitter. I can't understand that one. There's a lot of... It's very divisive. Like I mean, A lot of people are hating it. A lot of people are loving it. Certainly Twitter are very guilty of not advancing the platform. That's for sure. Uh, would Musk do it in a way? I mean, certainly we're going to have Trump back on Twitter, and I don't look forward to, to that. But at the same time, if you believe in free speech, um, then you have to believe that, you know, you can't kick anyone out within reason. Uh, and I'm, I'm one of those centrist dads that some people complain about, right? Uh, so, I, you know, I, you know, I'm one of those guys that hates annoying people on Twitter, but I wouldn't ban them. So I think Musk will do a better, he'll make a better product of it and he'll certainly make a better business of it. Will it be good or bad for the world? I don't think it could be much worse than not having an edit button. I brought up Tesla for the reason that you brought up the self-driving cars, autonomous driving. And I'd been thinking before I met you that in some respects, the drones are almost like an airborne version of that. Mm-hmm. Or are they? Is that a fair analogy? They're much simpler. Yeah, because you're in the air, you're regulated by aviation regulators, and you're flying over populated areas. We're, we're flying today in Balbriggan. As I'm speaking, our aircraft are flying over Balbriggan. They're flying over populated areas, over people, uninvolved people, that didn't ask us to fly over them. But they notice them? Not really. I mean, if you're looking up, you'll see them. They, they fly between 50 to 80 metres, and they're small enough. So you'll, you can see them, of course. There's not many of them. There's only there's, Today, there's two aircraft flying in Balbriggan, serves the whole... You know, community at a peak, we'd be five or six. 
So no, it's not it's not obtrusive in that way. If you if your neighbour here got got a delivery into their back garden, you'd see it and you'd hear it. Now for about twenty seconds, it's it's not it's not that obtrusive. And in fact, we have nearly no complaints. We have some complaints, but very very few. Um, so the technology itself is it has to be you know one hundred thousand percent safe and so it's it has to be simple you know you can't make a complex technology reliable always something will break so the autonomous part of what we do is not difficult you just say look if i don't have a very simple picture below me when we go to deliver we look we look simply for a two meter diameter flat inanimate area and if it's not that and we're not confident that it's that we don't deliver we go back up in the air and we fly home that's an easy, technology-wise, that's an easy problem to solve. So, and excuse me, <clears throat> probably going to be very stupid questions from a non-technological person that's in right. relation to this, but when you said, is there somebody monitoring the activity of the drone from some sort of headquarters where you're watching it on a screen, where you're almost piling it remotely, are, are the computers so sophisticated that they do it without actually having to have a person overseeing it? Yeah, they don't, they don't need any human intervention. The only human intervention that, intervention that they need is we, when they land for another delivery, we change the battery. So there's a hot swap battery and the cargo obviously has to be loaded. So the, the cargo loading battery change is human driven. When they fly, they're fully autonomous. They're on their own they, and they have to be on their own because... We do have people observing them. So we have people on the roof of Tesco and Balbriggan that monitor the airspace, look for helicopters or you know things that shouldn't be there, um, and they'll monitor the aircraft. And But one person could monitor 20 of our aircraft. Which, for a cost reason, you'd have to do that, wouldn't you? Because what's, Correct. what's the point in having one person for every drone? Yeah. You might as well have them just delivering. Well, it would still be more... Funnily enough, you're right, right? The, the model is it's one person for 20 drones. And, you know, but... Even if you had one person per drone, you'd still be making a lot more money than people make doing road-based delivery. Because road-based delivery, your typical delivery driver will do just over two deliveries per hour, and up to three if they batch them and they're they're in a busy city centre. Um, so one of our aircraft does six to eight deliveries per hour. So if you had one person, they're already much more efficient than using the road. But you wouldn't want that anyway. It, it, anything involving humans is going to lead to mistakes or, or complications. Cost aside, it doesn't work to scale it with people. So the way we look at this is we're going to completely end road-based delivery. There will be no more road-based delivery. Uh, there shouldn't be. It's a bad thing. It's bad use of human brains. It's very expensive. It's dangerous. There's loads of accidents caused by it. And the customer experience is awful. You know, it's you have someone, some stranger arriving at your house with a cold bag of chips that they've probably had a few of, and it may be Or they haven't brought the full order and or you're asking them to go back and then yeah. the kids are And you have to tip them anyway because you feel bad for them even though they got the order. And by the way, they've eaten some of your chips and yes, they have COVID. Right, so it's not it's not great and... That's in the reviews. These platforms, you know, do a great job at scaling, but it's an impossible problem to solve. If you're selling something for 20 euro, but it costs six to eight euros to get that product to someone and you have to charge a restaurant a commission, it just doesn't add. The numbers don't add up. Mo- largely, they're negative unit economics. But if you introduce robots to that, and our average delivery time is two minutes, 40 seconds in Balbriggan. So that means we have tons of coffee orders where you order your coffee. It's, it's actually nearly half our orders. You order a cappuccino, you're going to get it in about four to five minutes. Prep time plus flight time. And no spillage? 
no spillage no there used to be spillage when we when we had the wrong lids but now there's no spillage no and so that's viable suddenly all these different things become viable and the the local bookshop in Oran Moor where we were last year they had a better product than Amazon had you could order a book and get it in less than five minutes so it is a better way for consumers to receive goods and for vendors for the small businesses that we would work with you know we've given them access to 20 30 square miles of catchment area in five minutes for free that's pretty powerful tool or infrastructure to give a community and and the local business so it's it really ticks all the boxes describe the drone to me uh so i always say it's about the size of a golden retriever but with propellers that's pretty sizable yeah, it is, yeah. And the cargo bay, the way we've designed the cargo bay is to, to take 95% of convenience stores. So as you walk into your Tesco, you have a single basket, you fill it with stuff that you need and you pay for it. That basket, we can take 95% of them. So it's, it's three and a half kilos, 30,000 cubic centimeters. So really, it's most of, most of the reasons you'll get in your car and drive somewhere to buy something, we can cater for that with the new aircraft. How did you design these drones? Were you working off other prototypes that other manufacturers had done, or is this something original? No, it's, it's, it's very original, Jane. There's, there's no such thing as a delivery drone. There's also an alphabet do it in the world. Um, so, but there's basic principles. So a, a drone is a drone, right? And it's, it's a very simple system. It's a battery uh, it's motors with uh, programmable speed controllers. So you send the throttle input and you get, you know, an energy level from the battery to go into the props. And you have an, what's called an IMU, which is accelerometer. So solid state device that lets you know pitch, roll, yaw, which way you're pointing. And then GPS units, compasses, some uh, lasers or, or LIDARs, a little bit of radar, a bit of camera sensor. So you kind of lots of sensors that you're fusion fusing most military drones would have those on them and they've been going 20 years just we haven't known about them uh, and as that technology has matured particularly battery technology and computer vision it becomes viable to build one of those things for sub 20 grand like a really capable now you buy a dgi drone and harvey normans for a thousand euros and it's superb it's a great bit of hardware but it'll never be safe enough to fly over a populated area one in 5,000 will drop out of the sky and it's going to hit somebody at some point. So you need an aviation-grade bit of hardware, which is unusual. So there's a, there's a combination of drone technology, of software engineering, and then crazy reliability engineering that goes on to the aircraft. That's, it's just very unusual space. It's kind of because the, the industry doesn't exist yet, there isn't a product to serve it. And that's what we're doing. Okay. And some more of this, not quite technical details, but the things that people might be interested in. Are they able to fly at night? Yep. Yeah. We fly uh, when we were in Oran Moor, we were flying at night early on. Yeah. No problem. Okay. So that means also, do they carry cameras to be able to see where they're going? Because then there is the fear that some people have that they will be used effectively for, for spying. Correct. Yeah. The biggest concerns, if you survey people about drones, and I'm sure some of the listeners to this will be itching to complain about, about what we do. And it's natural. And we understand that the biggest uh, concerns about what we do are in order of, you know, responses, noise, privacy and then believe it or not job loss so the automation and how it leads to job loss which it doesn't so noise is an easy one our, our aircraft has you know they have large props noise is not an issue we've we've 
almost no complaints about noise and rightly so because they don't really make much you can't hear them at cruise altitude and even when they deliver we make less noise than an electric car so there's no right to complain about that and the privacy front that is a huge concern and rightly so and and our view of this is if we're flying over your community then we don't have any right to collect any data and so we don't. We have no customer data. We don't record anything. We have no ability to look inside your house or down to your garden, any of that. The one area where we do look is if we're delivering to your house, we'll point a radar, a LIDAR or a camera down, depending on the weather. And we'll look to make sure there's a two meter diameter flat inanimate space. That's for safety. Because we're not going to drop a sandwich on your head if you happen to be there, right? So we have to do that. But we have your permission, right? So you've asked for the delivery. You've told us exactly where you want it. So when, when you order from us, we ask you to drop a pin on the map exactly where you want us to drop it. And that's where we deliver. So you've given us permission to fly to your house, drop a sandwich there or a coffee or some pharmacy, whatever. So we don't think that there's any privacy concern. Okay, but just say, for example, if I asked you to deliver something to my back garden out there and I have a very nice flat space, but yet I've got a couple of trees on the road overlooking the back garden and there are electricity cables and things like that. How does the drone navigate all those? That's not a problem. Um, So we see the trees, we see the cables, all of that. And the very first time you register with us for your first delivery, we have a very high resolution view of all the areas. So we know where all the cables are, we know where all the trees are, and we make sure that that area is safe. And that's locked in then, that's your delivery location until you want to change it. And then when we actually fly, so in real time when we fly, you, you might have brought in a cherry picker here to fix your tree, and that cherry picker might be exactly where we're expecting to deliver. We'll see that when we just abort the delivery. That's, that's pretty straightforward to do using radar and LIDAR. What about avoiding collisions? And particularly, say this becomes prevalent and you have loads of the drones running in an area. How do you make sure that they don't end up colliding? What sort of air traffic control do you have? Yeah, there is. And it's we already do it. So we have federated airspace where multiple operators can share the airspace with each other. And when we... When we're flying to your house, we allocate a corridor over 4D, so three-dimensional corridor over time. We allocate the corridor for 10 minutes, and that corridor is ours, and no one else can fly in that. And we advertise that corridor to any other operator in the area, and they have to acknowledge that corridor before we'll fly in it. So it's kind of almost like an auction system. Say, we're going here. Is everyone okay with that? And until you get a positive acknowledgement from all the other operators, you're not allowed to fly. So, so it's actually a very simple system. Where it gets complicated is, and, and so all that works, and that's what we do now in Balbriggan, it's what we did in Galway, and, and that's a well-acknowledged standard. It's called U-Space. In Europe, the regulations are called U-Space. And so that's actually, believe it or not, quite easy. Where it gets difficult is, let's say we have a battery fire in the aircraft. So let's say we're flying a million times a day, which is where we're going to be at scale. Something will go wrong. I mean, everything can go wrong at that level of scale. And the big one would be the battery fire, right? So we have two batteries, two main batteries in the aircraft. So we can survive a battery fire. We just shut down the battery and we have a parachute so we can deploy the parachute. So there's all sorts of mitigations. But let's say we deploy the parachute and there's 40 mile an hour winds we're now going to be going whichever way the wind decides to take us and we're much bigger now because we're a parachute and the parachute's four meters right so we're a much bigger object now we're out of control 
but we do know where we are. So we have twin LTE connections on the aircraft, uh, SIM cards across two different operators. And we have very low bandwidth, low latency requirements. In other words, we're advertising our position every half of a second. So we know where we are. So the emergency mode when something goes wrong is you're streaming your coordinates to everyone else in the airspace. And everyone else does something called tactical deconfliction. It's an aviation word. But it's basically, okay, shit's gone wrong. We all need to get home or we need to pause or we need to do something safely. And they know where the foreign object is. That's all done it's all part of the regulations. It sounds a little bit crazy, but it means that everyone will be safe and it works. Were you into aviation prior to this? No, no. Uh, I'm a software person, know nothing about aviation. So where did the idea for this come about? Sitting in my back garden in Raffarnham, uh, which is a suburb, as everyone knows. Uh, delivery is awful in Raffarnham. Um, and I can't get anything delivered to my house. Or if I, if I do, it might be an hour and a half and, you know, it's horrible and doesn't work and delivery doesn't come out to my house. I'm too far away and all, all these things. Maybe you don't tip enough. Yeah, maybe, that's the, maybe the problem is the electric fence. Um, no, so it's, a, yeah, well, look, that's kind of overstating it probably. I could if I wanted, but I'm a grumpy old 50-year-old plus now and it has to be perfect and it's not perfect. And then I speak to the local Liberos, chipper and volunteer, great chipper. Uh, and once a month I get a bag of chips. That's my limit, right? And, you know, I speak to them. They know me well. They know me even better now. And talk to them about And if you go there on a Friday night, there's this guy sitting in a car outside. He's a big lad. And he drives a big diesel car. And the engine is idling the whole night. And he's waiting there for deliveries, right? And he's in there and I'm just looking at this and this is wrong, right? This guy's delivering a few bags of chips a couple of times an hour. He's got a diesel car doing it and the chipper's not making, you know, they're forcing a 20, million, uh, 20 euro minimum uh, order. He's making 10 euros an hour, but he's driving a diesel car and the engine's running permanently and the customer's getting, you know, dodgy chips at best. So it, that's not working well. And I'm thinking, you know, I know a bit about technology and I have a couple of drones that I've, you know, crashed into trees in my garden. And so I know a little bit, but uh, it's very clear to me that I could attach a bag of chips to my drone and it would easily fly from the chipper to my house. That's where the idea started. Now, obviously, it's a bit more scientific than that now, but that's the basis for it. Yeah, a lot more scientific, but it does require you. A lot of people have ideas and they can see that, yeah, that might work having the chips delivered. But to go about doing it is a massively different task. So what motivated mm. you to do that? Fun. I mean, it's a very interesting project. I, mean, I would like to learn. I'm a programmer. I'm a technology guy. Um, I'm inquisitive, curious mind, loads of energy still. And it's an incredibly interesting problem to solve. It really is very, very interesting. And, you know, I have a team now, 110 people in the business, and they're combination of electrical, mechanical, software, aeronautical engineers. And I know nothing about most of that, but I lead them. And you could lead them too, because it's not, doesn't need to be, you don't need to be the scientist to, you know, to, you know, invent something. You just need the idea and you, you need enough, right? You need to look through. Yeah, I know. I can see your No, I your don't think I could. I think you could because I want to. You only need to be mediumly technology savvy to build a technology company, but you need to be 
you need a lot of energy and you need to be good at leading the teams and getting them interested in it and steering them away from stupid rabbit holes that they'll go down. That's kind of where a lot of companies fail startups is they go down these, they go the wrong direction for a while and they, they keep going there. And I think there's a commercial pragmatism that you need to have always that has to trump the best technology solution. And that combination of commercial, what I would say, not acumen, because that's too respective a word for me, pragmatism and and enough, deep enough technology experience lets you, I think, avoid costly mistakes that potentially put you out of business. Does that almost go back to what you mentioned about Elon Musk earlier, that he's not necessarily going to have the best technology or the best cars, but he's able to be pragmatic enough as to what to sell and sell them best? Correct. Yeah. And if just look at the model, look at look at the Roadster to the Model S to the Model 3. The Roadster, you could never have scaled it because the, the, the distance would never have worked. And if they had scaled it, they'd be out of business. The Model S, you know, beautiful luxury sedan, all of that good stuff. But if they had scaled it, they'd be out of business because the cost to manufacture that car, the techniques that they had and the, and the, and the price point, they would have been out of business. And they waited until they got to the Model 3 to really pull the trigger on scaling manufacturing, taking on the debt to fund the manufacturing to scale it up. Now, a purist would have said the Model 3 isn't nearly as good as the Model S. But the Model 3 is where he hung his cap and said, that's the product that launches this company. And that is the product. That is the one that turned all of the naysayers on the markets. They're still not Tesla believers. They're begrudging Tesla believers. But then they all lost out. They were all shorting the stock. They were all blah, blah, blah. But what he did right there is he said, you know, the strategy here is the Model 3. And we're going to get this car to what I would call an everyday price point, so the middle of the market. Nobody believed they could do it. And he was right to say that the Model S, you couldn't have done it with. The Roadster, you couldn't have done it with. But the 3, you could. So that, that, that to me is, you know, commercial acumen. I want to come back to Mana Aero in a little while, though I want to go back almost to your childhood and teenage years and your love of video games, but not Mm. as in necessarily playing them but actually making them tell mm-hmm. us about that yeah. did you play much video games yeah or- i did yeah i used to go to the Logan bowl rest in peace uh and i never had any money you know typical 80s kid right no money so i'd watch other people play the games and i was really into it not at early days not on that technical level but i was you know like every other kid you know it was really interesting and you know you want to stick your 10 pence coin in and get a game or whatever and I was definitely interested in that but I very quickly went it was also it was 1983 when the home computer craze was happening and nerds as I would call them you know I was reading computer magazines I was edgy I was learning right I was interested and I was learning and you know my, the, the young me there's no difference between me now and me then I, I love to learn new technologies and and this was that's what that was. So I was getting all the computer magazines. I was er- learning 
And then luckily I got to own a ZX Spectrum, you know, which was a pretty huge deal. And I I definitely was not interested in playing games. I was interested in, in the technology that drove them and learning about it. And then there is another part of me that says, and I also want to make money out of this. Definitely, you know, I, I wouldn't be happy in academia, pure learning. I would want to be building with a with a reason to be building. And video games at the time was great. You could you could I could write a letter to a UK magazine and get a hundred quid check back. And for a hundred quid check for a thirteen year old, fourteen year old kid in nineteen eighties was sorry. Yeah. What were you doing to get the money? You were writing letters, doing what? Uh, writing code, <laughs> writing demo code. And the UK magazines, computer magazines, would print the code out in, in hexadecimal for the, for the computer guys in there. So you'd send a bunch of hex, which is these, you know, alf, you know alphanumeric codes that would be, represent computer code that other kids would type into their computers and it would make their screen flash or it would make a, something bounce and there's something, right? So it was for the hobbyist community. But the, the UK computer magazine industry were paying for coders like me to send code to them. And that's, that was their... But hold on a second. You're 13 or 14 years old. I was 13 age. when I made my first money in computers, yeah. So what sort of brain must you have had that you were able to write Left code? brain. Pure left to the spectrum levels. So, like, really, I I wasn't a nerd. I played on the football team. I wasn't yeah. that bad, you know. Uh, but definitely, I had you know an extreme interest, almost a almost a disorder. But say you were self taught. This is not the type of 100%. stuff that was taught in school at that stage. Hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I I can't be taught. I have to teach myself. I'm not a good learner. Um, and so I told myself, it's not, computer programming isn't difficult. It, it's a trade. It really is. I promise you, you could be a great programmer. No, absolutely You could. It's I just, everyone I listening to this could also be a great programmer. You tried in your spare time. No, I actually, it was part of my commerce degree in UCC. Yeah, but exactly, your spare time as a module, <laughs> as a module. And I was yeah, utterly hopeless at Yeah, it. that's not the way it works, though. So you can only do one thing. If you're a left-brainer, you can only do one thing. And with programming... And certainly in the case, in my case, I locked myself in a room with that spectrum for years. I had a crap leaving cert because of it. I dropped everything, everything I dropped. The only thing I did good at was physics, maths and applied maths because those are left brain subjects. You don't need to learn them. You either know them or you don't, or at least they're easy to learn. And But the programming, I just dove right in. I sacrificed. Basically, I bet all my chips that programming was going to be my future. And, and I also enjoyed... How were your parents with that? My dad hated it. I fought with my dad over it. And my mother, my mother believed in me probably stupidly. Uh, it was almost like, you know, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a band. I want my future. I'm going to create a band and I'm going to make my money in music. That's the way my dad felt about it. My dad, I was a good footballer. I played for Bray Wanderers, so I was a good footballer. And my dad believed he was a professional footballer and they wanted me to be an accountant or, you know, one of those things, go to... Safe job, profession, I'm one of six kids and I was probably the great hope, right, to go to university because none of the others went. Uh, And to sacrifice it all for a toy, which was my ZX Spectrum, you know, my dad never got his head around that. But look, worked out. And, uh, you know, it's a very... If anyone has kids out there 
um, I couldn't imagine a more enjoyable hobby that becomes a career for anyone. And look at me, I'm 53 and I still write code. I still absolutely love it. My code is on our aircraft, only a little bit. Now all my team are going to be turning their noses up at this, but... I do write code and I'm still, you know, if you, if you don't lose coding. So, yeah. And, and when I retire or my next gig, I'll be writing code till the day I die. I'd say I'll be building apps or building video games or something. I love it. So you didn't have a great leaving start, but you did go to college. You went to Kevin Street. I did. Yeah. And that wasn't, that didn't work out great. For Why me. not? And also RIP Kevin Street. Uh, so well because I like they were wanted to teach me German and economics and statistics and all. Well, what I, course did you sign up for? Computer science, right? And it was anything but. You know, they were preparing people to work in banks, writing COBOL or something. It was just a traditional education, like with the greatest respect. And I still, I'm still in touch with some of the students that were there. I lasted less than a year there. I did my first year exams, and it was really a joke. I just I just couldn't connect with the college experience at all. And and anyway, I'd already gotten a job lined up. Uh, so it was kind of, I needed to earn money. I was a kid of the 80s. My family had no money. My mother was running a stall up in the Tala Star Market selling old clothes. So we weren't a, a rich family. Um, and I need, there was pressure on me to earn a living. And there was a look at four years learning German and economics and statistics. Uh, no. And and then, like like I said, I had found a job down in Waterford working for to write video games. My dream. There's, there was literally in Waterford. Yeah, there was a there was an IDA back company there called Emerald Software, and they were writing video games, or or they had gotten contracts to write video games for some US companies, and they were looking for programmers. And it was a weird world, like where like I was a state of me. I was seventeen years old. And I go down for an interview. I brought a cassette with me. I still have the cassette, which is my demo cassette. It's just like, you know, starting your own band. You have a demo tape. And I had a demo tape, which I still have. And it, it basically did something on the ZX Spectrum that was really difficult to technically really difficult to do. And they gave me the job. And it was unbelievable. £14,000 salary, which w- was unreal. He has proper salary. First, straight away, went out and got a loan to get a fast car. And, you know, <laughs> so generations haven't changed. But, oh, my God, it was such a wonderful time. I was about two, two plus years there. And then you went Just, to Mexico. Or did, was it yeah, Mexico well, there was, there was interim boring bits. We actually set up our own. That company went bankrupt. And then we set up our own video games company. And we did a load of contracts, work for Nintendo and other U.S. companies. And it was great. And then I went to South of France for a couple of years. Uh, which I'm ashamed of was the you know it was an interim where I made loads of money as a consultant programmer for a big tech company down there, but you know the most boring in terms of career and education was it was a vacuum you know for two years for me, and then I went to Mexico City and that's when you know my Why life really Mexico went mad. Mexico City because I had met uh, I'd made friends with a guy in South of France. Andres Cornelison, and he was an old, really old guy. He was 51, you know, and I remember seeing him at the time, 51. Jesus Christ, what am I going to say to this guy? Two years younger than you are now. Two years younger than I am now. But he was a businessman, right? And he had been the CEO of Avianca Airlines. He was a proper, you know, businessman. And we became friends, and we had a lot in common, actually. And he... You know, I was building this software for this big multinational company. It was a terrible product, and they were essentially a monopoly. 
And at the time, the regulations had changed in the Latin American and U.S. market. In fact, it had been deregulated, so it was a free-for-all. So these monopolies were no longer allowed to force travel agencies to use their software. This was the Amadeus software. Yeah, it was Amadeus I was working for, yeah. And they're a great com- they were a great company then, they still are now. But big companies do not innovate. They make pretty you know, mediocre products. And there's always customers that want something more, that want something better. And... I knew that I could build something much better than what what they had. And at the same time, the laws had changed in the US to permit something. And then in Mexico, there was this joint venture that got started up called Certel, which was a joint venture between American Airlines and Sabre, which is another big GDS. And they were looking for someone to build the software for the whole system. And I, don't, I can't remember how, but we they found us. And, and I said, I can build that. And I was 21. And I said, yep. And we got a $600,000 contract to build it. And I, went, I moved to Mexico to do it. And I lived in the hotel. Um, we had no right to get that contract, by the way. Um, but we got it. And I went. I, I lived in a hotel for nine months in, in Mexico City. And I built the software in the hotel. And it was great. The software was really good. But that company, of course, being Mexican, went bankrupt as well. I couldn't even afford to check out of the hotel. I was absolutely broke credit card bills I was you know busted flush and uh, but we had this great piece of software and I'm still living in Mexico loving Mexico the best place ever and why then, is that what was so good about Mexico uh, the people you know like it was dangerous dangerous dirty you know, everything about it on, on the surface is not great but underneath it you have these wonderful people wonderful culture uh, just a, you just have a great time. As a, particularly as a young person, you're welcome there. They're, they're, they're not terribly dissimilar to us. They're a very welcoming bunch, good crack. Uh, they work hard, they play hard. And, you know, again, I was uh, a young guy at the time and, and I had a great time there. And I, I loved it. And I, I get back there once or twice a year still. Um, I have very tight connections to Mexico. Um, and it started, the, that business was called VTI at the time. And I ended up growing that business. Funny, you know, I bumped in at dinner. I bumped in in Mexico just as I was really absolutely screwed. I couldn't afford even to get a flight home. I met this guy, Dan Conroy. He was the head of American Express Travel for Latin America. And we hit it off. And and long story short, we ended up building American Express $25 million for that software over the coming years. And so it's it's just, I always say this to people, it's like most of your success, like in, in, a, in the type of game that I'm in is pure luck, luck of timing. And, yeah, but and clearly serendipity. you were never afraid to go and talk to people, were you? No, for sure. No, like I rolled the dice every time and, and not afraid to get out there and... Uh, but, but like I do, there is substance, right? I, I do. I, I can. If I'm selling something to someone, if I'm selling a dream to someone, I know I can build it. You know, it's not like. Uh, oh no, I wasn't accusing you of no, bluffing no. or anything. But I'm just saying you clearly had confidence, even as a young man, yeah. to pitch yourself forward for things and say, "I can." Well, do I have that. an Irish and mother. You had, a, you had a belief in that that you could. I had do an it. Irish mother. I was. I thought I was invincible. Um, I know I was foolish. Like back then, I was really. You know, I was. I was. Uh, I certainly was advertising above my, you know, credentials or my my pay grade, but you know, I I could I could see it through, uh, and no, I was, I was I wouldn't say that I was very confident. I was very clear on on what I where the opportunity was, and and from talking to people like, but don't forget, right? There's not many techies that you can talk to, so you know, most of them are kind of 
they're sitting in their rooms and apologies to all the techies there, but not a lot of them have that crossover between being able to talk and being able to build. And so when I... And a lot Sorry, are they the type that don't leave their rooms and don't go and play the football like you were doing? You were still doing real <laughs> well, life things. They might things. be, they might be, but you know, you're not. Look, with greatest respect to techies, and I can say this because I'm a techie. Most techies want to do tech. They don't. They do not want to put the suit and tie on and go out public speaking and 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 build relationships and go out for dinners with people and all that stuff. They they want to. They believe in what they're building. They want to build great product, but that's where they want to stay. And that's, that's not enough to build a business. You have to do a lot more than that. And, and then on the other side, if, if I'm talking to a big you know, VP in a big company and he or she has a big commercial problem they need solving, and if I'm having a conversation with them, they know that I can solve their problem. So it's a nice crossover. Okay, I don't want to spend too long on Ferguson because we... Jeez, the amount of time you we're already forever, it's brilliant. I, yeah. I, I love the idea of this podcast is to have lengthier conversations than we can have on radio. Yep. But I am conscious that people mightn't want to walk for two or but three hours. <laughs> to, to hear you and me together, <laughs> finally. Eland, tell us about that. Was that the business that you built effectively for that American Express contract? Yeah, Eland's a funny story. So the business in, in Mexico was called VTI, Voyager Technologies. And it was great. We had a great product. It was a travel agency thing. You know, forward wind about five years. And that was going fine. It was a lifestyle business. We moved it back to Dublin in 96. And it was, you know, going great. We were, you know, uh, profitable. Sorry, why did you come home if you loved Mexico so much and you had the business? Then? Because we had business now in the USA. We had an office in the USA. I had been a year in, in UK building for a company in the UK with, with that business. And at the time in Ireland, you could, we, were, we wanted to grow a lot. Our, Dublin was a great place to grow. We had offices in South Frederick Street. You could get programmers all over the place, and there were good programmers. So Dublin was a good place to scale. And, and you know, it was kind of, I wanted to hear, you know, Today FM and to do, to 2FM. You want your, don't forget, there was no internet and no mobile phones. So you lost that human connection to, you know, back to Ireland. Dublin is still home for you. Yeah, definitely, you know, and you'd miss all the, you'd miss all the begrudgery and the dirt and the, and the inefficiency and, you know, the queues and all that stuff. Well, you had that in Mexico. Yeah, you definitely (laughs) did. Yeah. But, but you, you definitely, I definitely am a home bird, but I spent six, seven years on the road. And anyway, back to Dublin and we were doing fine as a business, but then we invented a new product. Uh, and it was based on a, again, it was based on a conversation I had with a senior guy in United Airlines. United Airlines had just started the Star Alliance, which is an alliance of 16 big airlines. They all have disparate technology systems. They can't talk to each other. They're just really crap mainframes that couldn't be made to do anything. But you can put a big technology lipstick on all of that and make it look like a cohesive system that an alliance would want, right? So if, if Matt is flying from um, Dusseldorf to to Cancun through Chicago on Lufthansa United and and another airline Air Mexico, then my system would be able to make sure they all knew who Matt was, what your loyalty tier was, where your bags are, all that stuff. Right? I was just about to mention where the bags are. Exactly. Yes. So so I could tie that up. Well, I had an idea to tie that all together with United, and they agreed it, and I got a contract to build that with them. And very clear to me then that this was a far more exciting product and bigger market than the current product of VTI was. So all we did was we just renamed the company. And I did a press release to say that Eland had acquired VTI. And suddenly Eland is famous because it's acquiring companies and it's got this contract with United Airlines. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. That, that's how small businesses 
do things, right? It's a little bit of smoke and mirrors, but you know, you're not lying because we did create a company called Eland and Which we did, did buy. move the assets over. So it wasn't strictly speaking a lie, but suddenly, because if we had taken that product as VTI, it would always have been the ugly sister of the original product. And we were in, there is a thing called stereotyping in technology. And we were kind of, the, the other software was a little bit, you were a little bit embarrassed to be, you know, building that type of software. It's called a screen scraper. And it's kind of not the most technology, you know, you're not flying rockets. It was just you're solving a commercial problem. So, so it was a good, smart idea. And, and that's where Elan came from. And, and we grew that. And in Dublin, South Frederick Street, then Dunleary, and then Letterkenny. We had a big space up in Letterkenny. It's still there, actually. And I sold that business in 2003. But that was two years after 9-11, which really turned the aviation industry yeah. on its head. So does that mean that when you sold Eland, you probably, in retrospect, didn't get enough money for it? No, Janie. Uh, well, to be honest with you, I, I didn't get enough money for it to my own fault because we didn't... It was a great company. It was profitable. Even through 9-11, it was profitable. Uh but we, we didn't take on external investment. So we, we ran it as a kind of a, what's called a lifestyle business, which sounds like a good thing, but it's a bad thing. It's profitable, you're taking a few quid out, you're paying off your loans or your mortgage or whatever, and you're growing it a little bit, but slowly. And and in fact, Gradient at the time, Gradient Solutions and Dundrum uh, were a similar company to us. They'd spun out of Datalex. And they had sold, you know, done a great sell on Tiny, like a revenue of about a quarter of a million dollars. And they had sold for, no, we sold for more than they did in the end, but we were about 20 times their size. And so it wasn't 9-11 that we had, what I would say, I mean, we made a good few quid out of it. It wasn't, you know, the end of the world. Um, but it should have been four or five times its value. And it, it was, we, we fell short because we didn't, grow it in organically we should have brought on extra capital and grown it much more quickly but that was kind of function of i was at the time i think i was 28 or 29 something like that and andy my partner was 60 so he was risk averse and just wanted to cash in the chips and get out and and i wanted to do more and um, but like i absolutely no regrets i mean we you know we did well out of it and the company today still exists in fact i think there's 350 people in the company now maybe more most of them up in letter kenny so that's something you know a lot of people don't say but i'm extremely proud that i've created all those careers and that there's people still making their living out of it and we'll get back to it a little while later because i want to talk to you about car trawler but well actually we talk about it now could that experience does that mean that you appreciate and understand scale a little more and so that what you're doing with manoero if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to grow it once mm. it gets going at a much, much faster rate and go much bigger. Yeah, definitely. Mana is like, e Eland was smash and grab, get a check, get things sold, make some money, you know, and get that done. Uh, car trawler was definitely scale, 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 but it's, you're always exiting, you're always, you know, don't get the timing wrong, quite conservative. It doesn't sound like it, but it was quite a conservative, very well-managed, well-grown you know, a sober type of business, but it was always, it, it had a finish line. And, uh, you know, there was no way we were going to get out without getting to that finish line or, or, you know, but we didn't really want to go any further. We had no ambition to take it public. You did spend a long time in car trawler. Yeah, I'd actually stick years. with car trawler. 15 now. years. Yeah. yeah, you could have, you could have a whole family in 15 years. And we did spend a long time and I loved it.
Just explain car trawler. We'll get back to Manoware on a What moment. is just, car trawler? Yeah. It's, so it's a, well, technically it's a B2B SaaS play, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a software platform that connects to car hire companies directly to car hire companies. So it goes by API straight into their systems to get a list of all their cars that they have and the prices to rent those cars. And then it aggregates all them, it, it mushes them all together, it reprices those cars, adds margins in, a lot of clever logic in there and how it does that. And then it makes that available to third party distribution. So airlines primarily. So we would plug into an airline website and we would basically, if Matt is flying to Malaga, you know, we would see that and we would advertise three or four cars, rental cars at, at what is we know exactly the price that you're willing to pay. And that margin, that markup that we would charge was the revenue for car trial. It still is. And technically, uh, maybe maybe it's maybe it's not, but I certainly think technically it's very simple. Uh, what we did really well there, well, first of all, again, you know, uh, timing. We started it when it was that whole industry of ancillary revenue of making of airlines making money out of passengers out of more than just the flight. That was only just starting to take off. And if you remember, my last business was selling to airlines, so I had a ton of airline customers, and I knew their strategies were now focusing on the internet was really starting to get going if you remember willie walsh and cutting off travel agencies and going direct um, all of that was really starting to take off and and i knew that they were going to need other products so it was, it was a natural um product to build but the technology behind it th- that tech in car trawler is still the same the the first year we created we built the tech in a year it's still the same platform. Yeah, but Bobby, what's interesting about that is you were talking earlier about the left side of your brain and your interest in physics and applied maths and coding and all the rest of it. But clearly there's a big part of your brain as well which looks at the products that are required by companies. You can see hmm. what services and products and then you apply the writing of the coding to that, which is maybe something a lot of other tech people don't have. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I would always first look for the the business problem to be that needs to be solved. But sometimes I would I would find the problem before the business would find it themselves. So that's the thing. Where right? does that come from, though? Is that even down to your mother trading up in Tala? I like, definitely have her DNA. That's for sure. Um, I, I I'm not sure where it comes from, uh, but I definitely. But I don't think that's very, I mean, m- most what I would call entrepreneurial minds would be trying to be one step ahead of everyone else. You'd be, because otherwise, if you're not one step ahead, everyone else is building it. So the competition is there and it's too late. So if you're going to come up with an idea to build, you pre- preferably you would be coming up with not something that's incrementally better than what's already there. You'd be coming up with something that people weren't expecting. And... Car taller was definitely that. It was like airlines didn't yet know that car rental was the perfect product for them to be selling with, with flights. But to me, it, it was because you could easily see. Well, by the way, I had to meet the Turleys first to figure that out. You know, the Turleys had founded this company and they were running an actual car hire company. And it was only, it was actually Cahill Friel that introduced me to them. But it was only when I met them and I was thinking about car rental, you know, it, the penny dropped quickly. I said, geez, this is exactly airlines need car rental that's what they need and also the economics of it um this may be the business i mean but i I looked at the economics of car rental 
they're awful for the car rental company, really awful. But for the travel agent that was selling them, they were super good, right? Because you're not dealing with the car and you're making 30% commission on, on a car. You right? don't actually what? have to purchase and own Do the nothing. car and you sell it at the end of the You sit back at your computer and you take the instruction and you make 30%. Whereas the car rental company, the Turleys at the time, they had to wash the car, they had to insure the car, they had to fix the dents, they had to fight with the customers. They, you know, awful business and capital heavy. But if you were an intermediary, it was going to be very attractive. And so that one, when I, when I met the, the guys in, in Terenure, I'll never forget it, it was so clear to me and to them that, that there was going to be a great opportunity to, tech, to put some technology in here and actually throw out the car rental company, which they did in the end, and become just a technology company. Um, and honestly, Cartola was an easy business to build. You know, So it was a good idea at the right time with a good technology team, but not, I mean, absolutely nothing special. You made money out of it. Yeah, I made a few quid, yeah. So that has provided you with the security, really, hasn't it, for, to go and, I wouldn't say indulge yourself, but allow yourself the time to go for Manaero. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like, Manaero is an all or nothing bet. It, it's, it's either going to be the biggest company you've ever seen happen coming out of Ireland, by far, or it's going to be zero, and equal opportunity outcome there. And the only reason, and I would have said at the start, it's three years old now, I would have said at the start, low chance of success. There's just too many, it's too difficult, very, very difficult. And each successive, you know, milestone that we hit, I feel more and more um, confident. And I'd be middle of the road, glass half full, glass half empty. I'd, I'd probably tr- see it the way it actually is most of the time and I wouldn't be blind to the risk or, or the opportunity. Um, but MANA is nearly there now. It's nearly at escape velocity where we're going to be profitable or profitable in economics and then the more money you pour in, the more money that you get out. And it's serving... The, and then the what about the scale? I mean, is this going to well, be... scale is... To take a lot of money in to oh, try yeah, become oh, Jesus, very I mean, big in lots of markets simultaneously. Well, like because tens of billions there are others of dollars. who are trying to do this. Yeah, Amazon have been doing it for eight years. They've spent $2 billion building their platform. And we're ahead of Amazon now. And that's not me being an arse. That's in what way are you, being, are you ahead of them? We're actually flying to real customers. Amazon have never flown... Real, they've flown to one real customer in the UK. It was 200 yards over a farm. Um, and I know them. We're actually man are in a, in a lobbying alliance with them. So I know them. They're not short of brains or money. They're brilliant, but they're a big company. And big companies find it very difficult to move things forward. And so we, like Mana finds itself three years later, probably second in the world. So there's us and Alphabet, the, their drone delivery program. And they're a great team, great product, but we're, we're making, we're at this three years, they're at it seven years and we're catching up and tomorrow, next year we'll be ahead of them and we will be the biggest in the world. And then if you believe that there's a future where drones will deliver, then you have to say, okay, what size is that future? And it's the future where every single suburb in the world can move things around in three minutes efficiently. It means you're changing the way people retail, it's changing the way people consume, and changing the way people move goods around. It's a, it's a massive industry. So how much money are you going to need to scale up and where are you going to get it? I'll give you some numbers. So we've raised uh, just over $30 million so far. 
Um, and uh, uh, credit, if I may, to Elkstone and Talon Merriman, who started us off and, and, and got us going with the first investment. These are venture capital funds, are they? That's right, yeah. Irish, based in Dublin. And uh, most of our funding now is foreign funding. So our recent funding came from Molten Ventures, which is a London, a UK-based PLC investor and some US investors. Well, there's been a lot of publicity. Peter Thiel, who was an original investor Yeah, I wish they wouldn't keep publishing that. Like They wrote a small check at the start. You know, the, the Founders Fund, Peter Thiel's fund, are not our main investor. Our main investor is Molten, Nicola McLafferty from, uh, from Draper's Creek. What about Creek. the Collison brothers? Yeah, John Collison is is an investor, and John and Patrick, yeah, and some other famous names that I'm under NDA not to mention. Uh, sure, every man and his and his dog is an investor in Mana, uh, and rightly so. Like Mana is a beautiful bet to place because it's one of those really it, it's one of the most unique businesses you're going to find. But this is not investment advice, by the way. If you've raised thirty million to date, how much are you going to have to raise in yeah. the future? Well, that I know exactly, right? So here's here's the numbers for for the for the bean counters. Um, you know, you're going to make it's going to cost about a dollar to operate a delivery at scale, right? That's the cost, and your revenue is going to be whatever five to ten dollars. So it's a very nice margin business. However, each aircraft costs about twenty thousand euros to make, and and so let's model the UK market for ten percent of the existing market in the UK you need 44,000 drones. So that's just short of a billion euros you need to get the capital for 10%. For Britain alone. For Britain alone. And that's just 10% of the existing market, right? That's before you even talk about coffee delivery or pharmacy delivery, things that don't exist today. So you could actually say that actually they do 850 million, the Brits do 850 million takeaway orders a year. They're by far the biggest in Europe. So you could roll the rest of Europe up and they'd still come to less number than the UK. So it's kind of they're big. But the US is eight or nine times bigger than the UK. So you're looking at, at maturity, you're going to have a capital investment of probably tens of billions of euro. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, right? But if you go back to the productivity of an aircraft, our aircraft in, in Balbriggan today does about six to seven deliveries per hour. So your aircraft is going to produce about four or $500 of revenue a day. That is an extremely attractive asset because it's paying for itself in three or four months. So actually, the numbers around what we're doing are extremely attractive. They're just extremely large. Where are you? Are you manufacturing the drones yourself or are you subcontracting yeah, we, it? We make them in a bog in County Offaly. Because you have a factory in Wales as well, don't you? We, you did, we, we have engineering in Wales. So we have some technology in Wales and a lot of our regulatory work we do in Wales. Um, but most of our team, out of the 110, I think now we have eight people in Wales and the rest are in Dublin and Offaly and Balbriggan. So you make them, you're not going to subcontract them to somewhere like China where they make these things more cheaply? No, uh, it's not about cheap. Um, like a DJI drone costs you a thousand euros, ours costs twenty thousand. Why is that? Well, because you use premium components, you use premium architecture, and you have a quality control process that's extremely expensive. And so you're, there's never going to be a world where Chinese drones are going to be flying over people in in rat mines or, or in Renla. Is never going to happen because you have to have an audit trail, you have to have a supply chain, you know, proof the whole way right down to the motor, the battery, all of the products that you use. So we'll outsource things 
certain things like PCB printing, so that the, the printed circuit board that we have, we'll outsource things like the, the manufacture of the carbon and car, carbon fiber airframe, which we do now. There's a, co- there's a company in Spiddle of all places that make our airframe, air composites. So we'll outsource some of the components, but we'll assemble them most likely ourselves in Europe and in the United States. And the numbers are really difficult to get your head around. We, we'll have to make more units than Tesla are making cars. So this is not an easy business to get going, but it starts to generate cash quickly, unlike Tesla. Have you put a time frame on it as to how quickly you need to be able to succeed? Yeah, well, like we think, we think we can be, we think we can have profitable unit economics by 2014. So that means it, 2024. You know, by tw- sorry, 2024. I always do that. You know, I've lost a decade somewhere. Uh, so we, so profitable unit economics means that we make more money than, than it costs us to operate a service. We think we'll have that early 24, if not 23. And so based on that, we're going to burn, we're going to burn mode a little bit more quickly. So in 2023, we plan to be in four or five European countries and about 70 locations with a small, about 500 aircraft, which, you know, which won't take us a lot of money to do. We'll lose money, but, you know, that's the right thing to do because we're early into those markets. And we think by 2024, we will be ready to do real scaling. And the real scaling is when we have manufacturing and we're rolling out, we're rolling out 500 to 1,000 aircraft a day and we're rolling them out. But 500 to 1,000 aircraft a day, it's still, you know, you still need 300 days to make enough aircraft for 10% of the UK market. So it's just staggeringly difficult um, to get this done. But um, all we need is capital because we have the team you know, we've got some really great people in the company that have scaled companies before that know roughly how to get this job done. And all we need to prove to the really to the investment community, the people that will be funding this, all we need to prove is, you know, that the economics of it are viable, that it works. And like I bring some of the world's biggest investors to the roof of Tesco and Balbriggan. They fly in and they go up there and the lift doesn't work. So they go up the <laughs> stairs, right? And there's, there's, I, I won't, I won't even say the words on, on, you know, on a public channel, but it's not pretty uh, trip to get up to the roof. And they come there and they're just absolutely blown away by it because you see these little aircraft zipping across the sky, making money and delighting customers. Like we're, our MPS the net promoter scores 93%. So 93% of our customers give us 10 out of 10 for the product. You're a 53-year-old man. Do you get as much fun out of this as you got as a 17-year-old in Waterford writing computer programs oh, for games? Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, uh, this is This has the added excitement of being just gigantically huge and the and impacting that honestly without it being sounding you know tried impacting the whole world just changing so many things so that makes it different but i still i the best work i ever did the most uh the biggest change for me in my life positive change where i really found what i love was writing video games and I answered this question the other day. I always tell people this. What are you going to, are you ever going to stop? Are you ever going to, you know, what's your dream? My dream is one of two things. Either be sitting in my back garden on a relatively mild day reading a book. That's kind of the dream for me. But I'm no, I know I'm not able to read books because I don't have the attention span. I don't slow down enough. Uh, so therefore, actually, the real dream is building a game. 
And that's my dream. I have two things to finish with to ask you. You're talking about fun. Tell us about your Arctic Circle expedition. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm involved with Deborah Ireland, um, a charity that helps kids with epidermolysis bullosa, butterfly skin disorder. And we do a, an annual fundraiser, which involves going to the Arctic Circle. And this sounds a lot worse than it is. It's more of a holiday, but a very difficult, uncomfortable holiday. And we went up uh, to the Arctic Circle and we just, you know, slept in a little tent in minus 32 degrees. It was, you know, with no jacks and no internet connection, which is torture to someone like me for a week. And we made, you know, we read the, the session I went on, there were 16 of us. And we made, I think we made about 150,000 euros, which made us very proud. And then another group went out. This And this time, we, MANA sponsored it instead. And we sent a couple of our guys out. And Mike Ross went out and loads of very important people. And then, again, they raised a load of money. So, it's, you know, it's, you couldn't imagine a nicer charity to support, really. But physically... I mean, did you do trekking across the yeah, Arctic as well? Yeah, yeah, carrying, like, you know those things, that those the stretchers, uh, you know, when someone's injured on the ski slope, so you have all your stuff and that, and you carry it across this horrible, you know, snowy, freezing cold thing. But, I, you know, it's not really that difficult. But it it is. You're taking a week of your time and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, going to the toilet and the jacks that doesn't flush and no internet. So it's a sacrifice. One last one. What's the Spanish galleon in your back garden all about? Oh, yeah. So um, I also run uh, a charity event uh, in my garden. I have a big garden, uh, for those who know me, and it's designed for running charity events, really. So I, I do this thing every year. I haven't done it, obviously, with COVID. So we'll do it again next year, I think. And we just raised money for the charity. It was for Bernardo's. For the, for, we've done it for six years, and we raised it for Bernardo's most of the years. And the next one will be for Deborah Ireland. And we simply, we charge people, you, you, you have to pay it for a ticket and the price is whatever you want to pay. That money goes to the charity. And me and my family, we, you know, pay for the thing. And the Spanish Galleon was built to be the stage for the party. So it's a music event, right? So it's kind of, if everyone's gone to Salty Dog at Electric Picnic, it's modeled on that, except it's even nicer. And we get great bands. We had the Coronas, we had Ash, we you know, we had some amazing bands there. And it's just a really nice, so it's not a par- I'm not a party person at all, but it's a really nice setup. It's nighttime, loads of fires and great music. And, and we make, you know, we make a lot of money for the charity. And it's kind of, it's kind of, instead of just donating the money to the charity, we have, you know, a thousand odd people come around and they all pay a lot of money. We make loads of money for the charity and everyone gets a great night out of it and there's more awareness for the charity. So if anyone would like an invite, find me on Twitter or LinkedIn and I'd be happy to fleece you for a ticket. Bobby Healy, thank you so much for joining us for Magnified. Thank you very much. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.